Good morning, Park Church. Uh, how are we doing this morning? Uh, anyone's toes cold? Because mine aren't. Uh, but it's, it's so good to be back with you. Uh, it was a bit odd not being here last Sunday. Uh, some of you were like, I didn't even notice that you weren't here. But I, I want to thank, uh, thank Matt for, for filling in for me last week. Um, as some of you know, I, I went and I was a guest preacher at uh, Monmouth Church last week. Well, Monmouth Church of Christ, but they refer to themselves as Monmouth Church. Uh, and, and had a, a great time. Uh, this, is a, this is a community of people who are generous, who are warm, who are hospitable, and received me and my family uh, with such grace. Uh, and we, we just had a very positive experience. And it was, it was also very encouraging in my conversations with many of them to sense and to hear uh, an excitement from their community about the possibility of, of some sort of future together. Uh, and so, so I, I just want to say, uh, for those of you who have been praying, um, thank you. Uh, and, and please continue to join us in prayer as, as we discern together uh, what, what God might be doing uh, in and through us for the sake of his kingdom in Monmouth County. Uh, later this morning, uh, we, we're going to be doing some child dedications. And in thinking about children uh, this past week, I, um, I began to think about Plato. Uh, now, now tell me, is, is anyone here, uh, does anyone here remember playing with Plato as a kid? Anyone here? Okay, who's a big Plato fan? I, I loved Plato when I was a kid. Uh, and, and there are two things in particular I remember as I think about playing with Play-Doh. Uh, the first thing is what I would make every time I would play. Every single time I would play with Play-Doh, I would make the same thing. Uh, I would take as much as I could, different colors, whatever I could, smash them together, and I would make a snake. Because I loved snakes when I was little. And, but I wouldn't just make any old snake. I would make a king cobra. Because let's be honest, king cobras are the coolest of all snakes, right? They're the largest of all venomous snakes. I don't know if you knew this. Uh, you're getting a biology lesson this morning. Um, and then so I would make this snake, put its head up, and it would have the hood, and I would make little fangs, and I would like put them in there, and inevitably my little Play-Doh snake would eat all of the other kids' Play-Doh creations. Uh, but th this is a memory that I have from when I was little. But there, there was one other thing, though. There's one other thing that I, that I remember about Play-Doh when I was little, and, and it's this. There's nothing worse, there's nothing worse as a kid when you get a little Play-Doh container like this than opening up, taking out the Play-Doh, only to discover that it is rock hard. Anyone have this, 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 this experience? To take out the Play-Doh and have it be just like a rock. You can't even play with it. You can't do anything with it. Utter disappointment. I want to suggest this morning, some of you are like, Michael, where are you going with this? I want to suggest that the human heart is like Play-Doh. The human heart is like Play-Doh. You see, God 
wants to mold us. God wants to shape us so that he can use us, each and every single one of us, for his beautiful and redemptive purposes in this world. But if, like Plato, our hearts become hard, if, like Plato, we are stubbornly set upon our own will, our own agenda, our own way, then we make ourselves useless to God and are therefore unable to become and do what we were created to become and do. This morning we're continuing through our series called In All the Wrong Places. And throughout this series, we've, we've been uh, talking about how what it basically means to be a human is to be a worshiper. That we were all created to know, to love, and to serve God, and to be known by, and to be loved by God. And, and when we look for the love of God in places other than Him, we make idols out of things. And we inevitably become deeply disappointed and eventually enslaved by these idols. And so several weeks ago, we talked about the idol of approval, right? Looking to the approval of others instead of the approval of God. And then we talked about the idol of comfort or pleasure. Looking to things to provide us with that sort of deep comfort that, that only God can provide. And, and last week we talked about the idol of security. And this week we are talking about the idol of power. The idol of power. You see, in our text this morning, we meet someone who, though he was the king of Egypt, he was in fact a slave. He had hardened his heart to God and others, and in so doing, became enslaved to his own power, his own will. And as we explore this story from the Bible this morning as a sort of test case for the idol of power, if we're listening carefully, I believe that God has a warning for us and also a word of hope for us. Now, our text this morning comes from the, the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, and, uh, and our text is chapters 7 through 11. Now, if you're into math, you might know that's five chapters, uh, and I'm very tempted to actually read all those chapters this morning. I think that would actually be time well spent, but don't worry, we're not going to read all five chapters this morning. Instead, what I'd like to do this morning is summarize this story. But before I do that, would you, would you pray with me? <coughs> Father, uh, we, we pause now and we recognize that your spirit is present here in this room. Even if we don't feel it, even if we weren't even aware of it until now, you are present and you long to to do work in our hearts. 
So I, I simply asked this morning, Lord, that, that you, would, you would activate our hearts to listen. That, that you would do work on us. That you would open our hear, ears. That we would hear what you have to say. And that whatever distractions are swirling around in our minds, that you would just quiet and push them aside and let us hear from you. Uh, we love you too, Father, and we pray in your Son's name and by your Spirit. Amen. And so the context of Exodus 7 through 11 is fascinating. You see, at this point in the story, God's people, the people of Israel, are enslaved in Egypt. They are in a position of, of experiencing forced labor. They are an enslaved people. And, and God, at this point in the story, decides that this is the time when he's going to begin to move his grand plan for his creation forward. He's going to rescue, liberate, free his people from slavery in Egypt so that they can go to the promised land and once again worship God, become who they were created to be so that they might be a light to the nations. So that the world, when they look at this people, they would be drawn. Ultimately not to them, but to the God who, who created and loves the whole world. And so through particularly two individuals, Moses and Aaron, God approaches Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he says, okay, I, I want you to let my people go. I want you to free my people. This is the context of Exodus chapter 7 through 11. The problem, though, is that Pharaoh isn't quite as excited about freeing the people of Israel. As you can imagine, if you have a significant population of people providing cheap or free labor, what would this do to your economy as the king of Egypt? If all of a sudden this group of people just left. Thus ensues the battle of the wills between Pharaoh and God. And, and so God, giving Pharaoh a full warning, says, okay, but if, if you don't do this, I'm, I'm going to play hardball. And, and in these five chapters, what we see is God unleashing a series of ten plagues on Egypt. The famous ten plagues in Egypt. And every time, he gives Pharaoh an opportunity to surrender his will, to, to let his people go. And so he begins by turning the water in the Nile River to blood. Pharaoh retains a hard heart. Plague two, frogs infest the land. And we're told that there were frogs everywhere. I, I remember when I was in college, uh, I had some friends who had a prank done on them. It wasn't me. Uh, but they came home to their apartment one day and they opened the door and there was an inch thick, please silence your phones, okay? Uh, there was an inch, who's calling me? <laughs> anyway, there was an inch thick of sugar on every single bit of their floor. 
And it was, it was pristine. I mean, it was as if someone had taken like a, a paper and just brushed. I mean, it was so impressive, but just sugar everywhere on their floor. Imagine that being the case, but with frogs, right? There were frogs everywhere. We were told there were frogs in people's ovens, right? There was this infestation in the land. And yet Pharaoh retained a hard heart. So then God sent gnats. That didn't do the trick either. So then God sent flies. Hard heart. God then sent a plague upon all the livestock in the land. Once again, every step of the way, giving Pharaoh an opportunity to repent, an opportunity to change his mind. Nothing. So God sent boils among the people of Egypt. And then hail. And then locusts. And then at one point, God literally just turned out the lights. It was as if he just flipped a switch and darkness overtook the land. And we're told that it was a darkness that could be felt. Still, a hard heart. So God said, all right, listen, if you don't change your mind, then every firstborn son in Egypt will die. Hard heart. See, this is one of those classic Bible stories where we, we see these, these absolutely astonishing things that God does. And there's so many things we could talk about in this story. It's so fascinating. It's so curious. It's also so tragic in many ways. And yet there's a common thread, a common theme that weaves itself through this story. There's a, there's a central conflict that moves the plot line of this story forward. And it has everything to do with Pharaoh's hard heart. Pharaoh's hard heart is the one constant in this story. <clears throat> now, it's worth noting that there are several points in this story when we're told that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But there are also times in the story when we're told that God actually hardens Pharaoh's heart, which is a little perplexing. Hold on to that, because we're going to come back to that in a little bit. But regardless, this story is about the battle between two wills, Pharaoh and God. Pharaoh, you see, had taken a good thing, power and authority, meant and designed to be used to, to work out God's good purposes in this world, and he had made it an ultimate thing in his life. It had become an idol to him and therefore ended up enslaving him. And at the core of this idol, as is the case with all idols, at the core of this idol is a lie. And here's the lie. I'm in charge. The, the core lie at the heart of the idol of power is this basic idea that I am in charge. It's, it's clear that this is what Pharaoh thought. Pharaoh truly believed that he was in charge. His entire life had been oriented around this reality. He was the king. He was the emperor. He was the Pharaoh. His word was law. What he said went. 
And it's interesting, after the whole frog fiasco, Pharaoh went to Moses and said, okay, okay, listen, you guys can go. Just get rid of the darn frogs. And, and as soon as Moses said, okay, and prayed to God, and the, the frog thing lessened a little bit, this is what we read. We read that in chapter 8, verse 15, when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. So he softened his heart, but then he hardened it again. And in the course of the story, he does this six times. Six times. And something happens. A plague comes, and Pharaoh says, this is terrible, get rid of this, fine, go, go, God, you can have it your way. And then within one or two verses later, he hardens his heart once again. Deep down, Pharaoh believed that he was in charge. No matter what was happening around him, he was not going to let go of his power. Now, believing this lie that I'm in charge is, is not simply a tendency of kings, emperors, dictators, presidents. Although that is certainly the case, the more power and authority you have, the more tempting it can be to use it for your own purposes. But this basic lie that says I'm in charge is something that is intrinsic to every human heart. And, and think about it. We learn this and we begin to believe this lie at the earliest of ages. From the moment a child first begins to realize, oh, I, I have a will. Oh, I can, I can behave in ways that might influence other people to give me what I want. Oh, if I throw a tantrum at the grocery store, there's a good chance if I scream and yell loud enough and kick my feet enough, I might get this thing, right? I cannot tell you how many times a day my wife and I say to our kids, you guys, you are not in charge, okay? We're the parents, you're the kids. Right? And if you spend any time with kids, you know that, that this is the basic dynamic they're working out as they're developing. They become very good very quickly at the art of manipulation. Right? And, and the reality is, as the kids grow and become mature functioning adults, like all of us are, right? Uh, the reality is that tendency doesn't actually go away. The tantrums might look different, right? But they, they become more socially acceptable, right? We're not kicking and screaming in the grocery store, and yet the basic lie that I am in charge of my life remains. There's a, there's a famous poem that, uh, that a, a British, 19th century British poet named William Ernest Henley wrote. He didn't give it a title, but we know it popularly today as Invictus. Anyone familiar with this poem, Invictus? It's fascinating how this poem has permeated American culture. If, if you were to look up in Wikipedia, Invictus, you could see a list of all of the different ways that this poem has, 
has made it into our media, into our movies, into our commercials, into our TV shows. And, and I think part of it is because the heart and soul of this poem is all about this idea that I am in charge of my life. Let me just read the first and last stanza in this poem. Listen to this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. So inspiring. And so fundamentally misleading. Because the truth is, you are not in charge of your life. You aren't. Now, this isn't to say you do not have free will. This is not to say that you do not make choices, nor is this to say that your choices don't matter. In fact, they matter tremendously. The decisions that you make have a tremendous impact on the trajectory of your life and the people around you. But just think for a minute about the factors involved in your life that have shaped you in tremendous ways that you had no control over. Did you decide on your genetic code? Like, did you decide to receive the genes that you have? Did you decide what color your skin was going to be? The shape of your nose? Did you decide where you would be born? the culture that would shape you? Did you decide what language you would speak? What family of origin you would be born into? What century you would be born in? All of these things have shaped us and shape us in incredibly profound ways. And yet there's nothing any of us did to determine any single one of those. And not only that, but but even in order to make decisions, every moment of every day, you are dependent upon breathing, right? You are dependent upon the very air that you breathe. It's as if God designed this creation, this world in such a way, so that every single moment of every day, with every breath that we breathe, he's reminding us, hey, just, just so you know, just remember, like you're, you're actually not in charge you are incredibly dependent upon me. This is the lie at the core of the idol of power. And when we believe this lie, it comes at an incredible cost. It comes at an incredible cost. I mean, just think of Pharaoh for a moment and the situation in which he found himself. Time and time again, Pharaoh was given an opportunity to surrender his will, to let his people go. And time and time again, what did he do? He hardened his heart. And as a result, these plagues were unleashed upon Egypt. Let's just consider two for a minute. Hail. Has anyone here ever been in like a really bad hailstorm? Really bad hailstorm, okay. That's terrifying. 
right? Hail causes damage. Not least of all, in a society that's largely dependent upon agriculture, it causes damage to crops. And, and if the hail wasn't enough, then the locusts that came after it would have utterly depleted any other agricultural resource available to these people. Right? All because Pharaoh kept hardening his heart over and over and over again. And then most tragically, we come to the end, and God warns Pharaoh and says, listen, if you do not let my people go, if you do not release my people from the tyranny of slavery, every firstborn son in Egypt will die. The ball's in your court. And Pharaoh remained hard. Pharaoh was warned, and after the previous nine, his hard heart cost him the life of his son. There is a cost to a hard heart. And I want to ask this morning, what, what does it cost us? Like, what is the cost of a hard heart in your life? What do you suppose a hard heart does in a marriage? What kind of work environment is created if your boss has an unhealthy relationship with power and authority? What happens to your relationships when you are unable to soften your heart, say you're sorry, admit that you are wrong? There is a cost to having a hard heart. Now, now it's worth mentioning at this point, as I mentioned earlier, that, that there are times in this story when we're told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And there are times in this story when we're told that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So, so which is it? And more importantly, who's responsible for Pharaoh's hardened heart? And is it fair for us to blame Pharaoh, if at least some of the times God was the one who hardened Pharaoh's heart. This is a perplexing question, and this is a question scholars for many years and for many years to come wrestle with. But just one thing to say on this briefly. In chapters 7 through 11, uh, there are three verbs that are used, three different Hebrew verbs that are in some way used to communicate this idea of Pharaoh's heavy, hard, firm, or strong heart. Three ways to describe his stubbornness. And these verbs are used 20 times. Follow me. 20 times. 10 of those times, God is the subject. The other 10, Pharaoh is the subject. So there's a pretty good mix. And yet, the very first mention of Pharaoh's stubbornness in the whole book of Exodus comes well before this story in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 19, where God says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So in other words, the very first word in this story of Pharaoh's hard heart is, is not an act of God hardening his heart, but rather God's recognition that Pharaoh has a hard heart 
in and of itself. Which means when we're told later on that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, it's an intensification of an already present stubbornness. In other words, part of God's judgment upon Pharaoh was giving him what he wanted. You want to have a hard heart? You want to be in charge? Okay, here you go. Now, there's a real warning here, I think, for for each and every one of us, something that, that we need to keep in mind, and it's this. If you consistently harden your heart toward God and ignore his voice like Pharaoh by resisting his will, there will come a day when he will give you what you want. If you consistently give God the stiff arm, if you consistently turn away from him, he will not coerce you. He will not force himself upon you. He will woo you. He will invite you. He will will say, come, come to me. But he will not coerce you. And there, there will come a day when he gives you what you want. This is how sin and idolatry work. Either we worship God and we become who it is we were created to be and we let him have his way in us or we resist him, which it will inevitably mean worshiping something else. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. There are those who say to God, thy will be done. And there are those who, in the end, to whom God says, okay, thy will be done. There is a cost to a hard heart. But there's also hope. There is hope as well, because there is a cure to a hard heart. When we read the story of Pharaoh, we encounter a king who so loved his power that he lost his very son. But when we come to the story of Jesus, we encounter a God who so loved the world that he was willing to give his one and only son. Do you see, do you see that the cure to the hard heart is to do the thing that Pharaoh could not do, to do the thing that time and time and time again Pharaoh was unable to do, and that is to surrender his heart to the will of God, to recognize that God is in charge and you're not, to have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus, who, though being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or to be used to his own advantage, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, 
Every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Jesus shows us what it means to be truly human. His will was perfectly aligned with the Father. See, being a disciple of Jesus means being committed to the rest of your life to increasingly learning from him how to surrender your heart to the Father so that you can become like this, so that your heart can become soft, useful so that God can create something in you that he so longs to, something beautiful, something useful, something that he can use as he remakes this world. I want to end this morning with two questions. These are questions for you to prayerfully reflect upon, and the first question is this. Toward whom might you have a hard heart this morning? Is there someone in your life toward whom you have a hard heart? Could be a spouse, could be a friend, a coworker. It might be God. Second question is this. How might Jesus be inviting you to surrender? How might Jesus be inviting you to surrender? Whatever that might look like. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we come before you fully recognizing our need for your grace. Father, I know that, that all too often my heart is hard, and yet you give us hope. You, you are the God who softens hearts. And while you will not force yourself upon us, you will not coerce us, you call us, you woo us, you invite us to yourself so that you might have your way in, among, and through us. Father, I pray this morning that we, as a people, would hear this invitation and that we would respond, that, that you would soften our hard hearts and that we would, in whatever way we might be, take whatever power or authority we, we might be letting sit on the throne of our hearts and we would take it off and put you there in its place. Father, we love you because you first loved us, and we pray in your Son's name and by your Spirit. Amen.